I'm Victoria Doherty, and welcome to the cold. Cold is the way revenge is best served, the way a war was fought, and the way a story should be told. Vladimir Mayakovsky committed suicide at the age of 36 by playing Russian roulette until he lost. Both poet laureate and shameless Bolshevik flack, he had always fascinated Cosmo Zabloff, and the KGB spy found disturbing parallels between his own life and that of the young, brooding poets. First and foremost, what Mayakovsky was and what he wanted to be were two very different things, and Zabloff knew this pain well. Although he wasn't a poet, and had never cared about being a revolutionary like his imagined counterpart, Zabloff was a remarkable manipulator who had always wanted to be a brilliant tactician. That was a short excerpt from The Hungarian, which is book two of the Cold War Chronicles, um, second novel that I that I wrote in that series. And I was thinking about that passage this week. Um, As some friends and I were having this long and winding talk about childhood dreams, we each told our story of, you know, of our own childhood dreams, prompted by this question of the week, which is the way we've been keeping in close touch during the course of our busy lives. You know, all of us are bound to answer, you know, unless there's a tsunami or something. So I asked, what was your childhood dream? My friend Ellen chimed in, chimed in immediately. She was, well, I, you know, I expected that of her because she is just so completely, um, focused, you know, and always has been. And, you know, she said instantly, I have always wanted to be a writer. And she is one. Um, Fiction has been a constant in her life, you know, throughout moves and changes in relationships and child rearing and illness. It has never left her side. And she cannot imagine herself doing anything else. Not even when she was a kid and her friends wanted to be fairies and firemen or just, you know, super rich. When it was Ellen's turn to float out out her heart's desire, she always said, writer. However, Ellen was the exception. She was, as I said, just, or is, just this incredibly focused individual. What was so interesting about how the rest of us did not end up actually pursuing our childhood dreams, but somehow, but somehow those dreams just informed our careers and our sensibilities and lifestyles. So they did, they were not lost at all. Um, Now the dreams may not have been a constant, you know, uh, 
in our lives, the way they were for Ellen, but more like a constant companion. That friend who's always whispering in your ear and saying, want to go on a road trip? Are you going to go all the way with him? Let's ditch school and go to the beach. Case in point, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be Carol Burnett more than anything else in the world. And I should say, Carol Burnett turned 89 this week. And, oh, I have been thinking about her a lot because I watched her variety show every week. I memorized her skits. I even wrote my own and even filmed a few of them on this old Super 8 camera. Well, it wasn't old then. <laughs> you know, being funny, making people laugh seemed an honorable profession to me. One is worthwhile and noble as being a doctor or a teacher. At my darkest times, during my most Charlie Brown childhood moments, Carol was always there for me. And I wanted to do what she did, make people feel good after a rough day or a rough year. Of course, my comedy dreams were not exclusively altruistic. I loved watching people spit strawberry milk out of their noses after one of my cracks. I loved disrupting class, even earning a smack on the head from Sister Margaret Ann. She was built like a wrestler, and her meaty palms were powerful. But it was so worth the headache and the ringing in my ears. To this day, being called funny is the highest compliment I can receive. So much better than being told I look beautiful. When asked by a mutual friend what first attracted my husband to me, he said, she had a real sense of humor. Most women I've gone out with like laughing at jokes, but they never make any. That made my heart flutter. Yet somehow, even though becoming Carol Burnett was without question my fondest dream, I became a novelist who writes thrilling spy adventures and epic, heart-wrenching love stories, historical fictions, fantasies, all very serious stuff. But I can't deny that there's a deep current of humor in everything I've ever written. Even my most somber essays on my blog, Cold, also called Cold, <laughs> while they deal with death or faith or true love, and they tend to be embroidered with some manner of joke. I guess because of Carol and her influence on me, I just cannot stand taking myself too seriously. In even the greatest heartbreak, I leave room for the absurd, the ironic, 
or downright hilarious and have little tolerance for victim culture. Not because I don't acknowledge that victims exist and that their pain is real. It's that I feel succumbing to victimhood is toxic. As unhealthy as smoking five packs of cigarettes a day and washing them down with a fifth of vodka. I see a sense of humor as a trait of good character, not just a fun personality feature. During the course of my life, a person with no sense of humor has typically been my natural enemy in the wild. We circle each other carefully and usually just end up backing away. But while chasing off the sullen and tedious, my childhood dream has sucked into my orbit people who share my worldview and don't even blink when I tell them that Carol Burnett has had the greatest influence on my life. Not Gandhi, not Martin Luther King, but Carol. They not only understand, but they say, oh, I totally see that because they've had a similar journey. My friends Nick and Jess both took some of the best parts of their respective childhood dreams and helped calibrate them for their growth and changing needs. Jessica wanted to be a movie star, but became a tech entrepreneur instead. Now those are seemingly unrelated careers on the surface of things, but if you could see how Jess lights up any room she enters, you'd understand. She loves making the pitch and hatches approximately three life-changing, shit-disturbing schemes a day. She is a charismatic and ethical leader. You are a movie star, I told her. Her husband, Nick, wanted to be a baseball player, but now writes baseball mysteries. His alter ego, Johnny Adcock, is an aging major league pitcher who supplements his diminishing baseball salary with high-priced gumshoe work helping rich friends being blackmailed by murderous gold diggers and such. I bet Johnny Depp could have used his services a few years ago. Well, anyway, by writing baseball mysteries, Nick has gotten to hang out with a crew of baseball players he's interviewed for research. He's played ball with them, drank with them, lived vicariously through them. And maybe that's what I've hit on here. The vicarious part. My friends and I, all creative people, like writers and actors and entrepreneurs, we're a curious combination of wallflower and leader. We desire an inexorable amount of control, not only over our own lives, but the lives of our characters or products, made up peoples and gadgets 
we endeavor to use as avatars for our worldview, for being able to affect a mood, a belief, perhaps a childhood dream of someone else's. Of course, not everyone has allowed their childhood dream to stick around and share space with their more practical choices. And we all have friends who wanted to be musicians or scientists or chefs and and never took one recognizable step in that direction. They seem to have no invisible companion standing on their shoulder and telling them to take the dive. Not surprisingly, their dream died. And when you ask them about it now, they just sort of shrug or change the subject. Perhaps it's because they're unsatisfied with the path they chose and don't want to talk about it. Or maybe their childhood dream really did lose its allure. Like a second grade crush based on a freckled faced cousin's ability to eat a worm without flinching, their dream became a bit embarrassing once they'd grown up a little. As a result, what they became in adulthood was a reaction to the old dream, an opposing stance. Whatever the case, whether we fulfill them, absorb and repurpose them, or reject them outright, childhood dreams give so much more than mere career direction. They leave their mark. Some might say a scar. As for me, they are a fond memory, like a first kiss. I remember the taste of his lips, the thrill, the way his hand stroked my back and inched its way under my t-shirt just to feel my sun-kissed skin. But even that kiss, as intoxicating as it was, doesn't compare to the way my husband leans into me and looks into my eyes, holding me tight. That's the stuff, truly, realized dreams are made of. So what are your dreams? What were they? What are they now? How have they manifested themselves in your life? I mean, I think these are things worth thinking about, talking about, reflecting on, helping repurpose them and using them in our day-to-day lives, whether it's our work or in the way we raise our children or in the way we communicate and connect with our friends and loved ones. And I hope you'll do that this week. Um, This week I'm going to Miami, speaking of dreams, uh, 
for a mother-daughter trip with my daughter, and I just can't wait. That is, in and of itself, a dream. Um, it's, it's a trip for her high school graduation. And um, I will not be in the cold with you all next week, but I will be back the following week. So have a great fortnight and stay cold, my friends. Oh, also, I want to let you know about the Hungarian, which was the excerpt that I read at the beginning of this blog. It is on sale. You can download it for $1.99 on Amazon or Apple um, or uh, Barnes & Noble or Kobo or your, your the platform of your choice, The Hungarian by yours truly, Victoria Doherty. And I think you're going to love it. <laughs>